first session will soon begin. It'll run till 10:15. Um, Mark, we got in here. You, you need to let, give us time to ask your questions. For that, you get to head in with anything you want, and then we'll take a break uh, from 10:15. Take a half hour break to 10:45, and come back for another talk and um, some questions, and pick back up uh, tomorrow morning. Let's uh, open our time in prayer. You are the uh, maker of heaven and earth, and you are the one who watches over us. You neither slumber nor sleep. You are our keeper. And uh, we, we look to you now uh, to be uh, our guide, our teacher, by your Holy Spirit. We pray for your spirit to be upon uh, Dr. Picado. And so this time is going to be profitable. It's going to be enlightening for us as we get delved deeper into your word, God, that you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, it's all yours. No? Yes. So I, I forgot all about this stuff called frost, but it was really pretty thin. It came off. I just sat with the, you know, the heat running for a little bit, and it came off fairly quickly. Have a two-part session. There's a fellow named James B. Jordan, and I've, I've learned a lot from him. It's interesting that on the question of how to read Genesis 1 and how to interpret it, we really go different directions. There's one book in particular that I have benefited from. He wrote a book called Through New Eyes. Now, this book is not about worldview. You know, we think of having a Christian worldview. Those are questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we heading? Those big life questions that's our Christian worldview. This is different. This is a Christian view of the world. For example, a storm cloud coming. We would not, for the most part, have a Christian or a biblical view of that storm cloud. What do I mean by that? And the reason why we wouldn't, is because we have developed a science-only view of the world rather than a science. So here's how this goes. We see a storm cloud coming. This is especially the case in central Florida, but I'm sure it's true here as well. And what do we see? Well, in short, we see that there has been a big uplifting of air. And as that air goes up, it cools. And as it cools, it condenses on dust. And then as it rises with more speed and force and goes higher and higher, it gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, that, uh, that air up there is fully saturated, and rain then precipitates out. We see a cumulonimbus coming, and we say, oh, it's going to rain. 
And um, we say, well, there was an imbalance of electrical charges, maybe between the cloud and the earth, or maybe between one side of the cloud and the other, or one cloud and another, and and nature doesn't like that imbalance, so it discharges in order to equalize everything, and that electrical charge superheats the air so fast that it breaks the sound barrier, and there's this big sonic boom. What we see, that's not what the ancients saw. That's not what they heard. When the ancients saw a cumulonimbus coming, they said, here comes the Lord riding on his chariot. The clouds, the rain clouds, God's chariot. Thunder, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Thunder wasn't a breaking of the sound barrier to them. Thunder was God's voice. Lightning, God's javelin, read Psalm 18, uh, in order to vanquish his enemies. See, that's a biblical view of the world. And we lost a biblical view of the world with the rise of modern science. And you know from last night, I'm yay on science. I'm not boo on science. This is true whether we're talking about Christian science, atheistic science. As science, see, we used to have we used to have this same view of the world that we got from the Bible. Thunder's God's voice. The clouds are God's chariot. Lightning's part of God's weaponry, along with rain and hail. Homework assignment this afternoon, read Psalm 18 and look for all of this imagery. You know, clouds lifting and condensation and precipitation and, and superheating of air and electricity. And all of a sudden we said, yeah, that, that's right. And what we did was we left the biblical worldview behind. Because for some reason, we, as the believing body, we thought, but subtly and subconsciously, the more we began to see a scientific explanation, the more we left behind the Bible's picture of creation. So we're the poorer for it. What I mean by that is we can have a richer view of the world. Not either science's view, but science's view and the Bible's view. Here comes a cumulonimbus because of a big uplifting. That's the Lord riding on his chariot. Not either or, but both and. Uh, More on that tomorrow morning. What we want to do just in a small way this morning is to begin Bible's view. That biblical view of creation, which is not in conflict with a scientific view of any kind. It doesn't conflict with young earth science. It doesn't conflict with old earth science. But it's complementary. That's tomorrow morning in Sunday school class. So um, 
Jim Jordan wrote this book, Through New Eyes, a biblical view of the are both called Through Ancient Eyes. We want to begin to recapture this ancient biblical picture that the Bible gives throughout. We read texts and go, we go right by it, don't stop to think much about what it's saying, because we so much are reading the Bible through modern eyes of the world, which the ancients just didn't have. So we'll look later at a psalm like, The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world, and all who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the waters. And we read it, we know Psalm 24, but have we ever asked the question, well, what's that mean that the Bible is founded on the, the world is founded on the seas, that it's established on the rivers? Uh, that's what we want to do. We want to try to recapture this ancient view of the world. So, through ancient eyes, part one, we're going to start by just looking at images in general. Now, last night we already looked at Calvin, and Calvin on uh, the two big lights. The, the, it's interesting that in Genesis 1, God, it doesn't say God made the sun and the moon. It said God made the two big lights, the big one to rule the day and the little one to rule the night. You see, in this image, as we've seen, in the image of, uh, of the Bible's image, now anybody knows that that's just not true scientifically. The sun is not the biggest thing up there. Our sun is a mediocre star in terms of size. There are stars that are smaller. There are stars that are bigger. And the moon doesn't even compare in size to other things that are out there in space. And yet the Bible calls them that's not a scientific perspective. That's an ancient biblical perspective that comes from the way things appear phenomenological language. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Uh, Calvin also talked about the firmament and how there's, uh, there's something up there that separates the water below it and the water above it, and it holds the water up. We're going to look more not given to us by the Holy Spirit to teach us astronomy or other sciences. This is an ancient um, image. These are ancient images of the world. And we want to just slow down and try to get out of our modern skin and read the Bible as ancient Israelites. So uh, I'm going to be a Baptist preacher kind of today. A Baptist preacher uh, tells you what he's going to tell you in the introduction. And then in the sermon, he tells you in more detail. And then in conclusion, he tells you what he just told you. Well, I'm going to be a two-point Baptist. I want to tell you up front kind of where we're going so that we don't get lost in the forest for the trees, and then we're going to dive into the forest and look at some of the trees. Now, I'll throw to the screen to draw this for you. Um, and so we decided to go old school and use a thing called a whiteboard and markers. But as it turns out, we can't use the whiteboard and markers because you're more new school than the roll-around thing. They're all fastened to the wall, so we couldn't unfasten them. So 
so I, I got to call on you to really use your imagination. And I'm not going to go into all. If I say to you, imagine, imagine the, uh, the earth and the, 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 the atmosphere, what's it look like? I know what comes to mind. What comes to mind for you is a round ball. And then there are, there's a sky above it, and the sky has clouds in it. And uh, in the day, you see the moon, and you can see the stars there, there in the sky. Yeah, none of that's in our atmosphere, is it? No, it's all way be- but it, But we generally popularly say, yeah, it's a beautiful, look at that beautiful sky. The sun is shining in the sky. Look at that moon in the sky. And so we use sky, you know, kind of in a very vague and general and popular and non-scientific way. Well, if we were to say to mind's eye, the world, that's not what David would see. Because he would be seeing through ancient eyes and he would have a different image in his head. He would have an image of a flat earth. Have you ever wondered why people thought that the earth was flat? I think one of the reasons why they thought the earth was flat is because that's what the Bible teaches. That's it. But it doesn't teach that the earth is flat scientifically. It teaches that the earth is flat in terms of the imagery that it is using. And this flat earth is floating on water. Um, That's why Psalm 24 says he founded it upon water. It had to have foundations because if there's no foundation, imagine if you have a dock on, if you live on the lake, pillars, what's what's the dock going to do? It's going to be doing this all the time. So the earth has to have foundations so that it does not totter. We're going to look at that later. So we have an earth and it's floating on water. And then there's a dome that goes from side to side. And the dome holds up the water that's above it. So there's water below the earth. There's water. The sun and the moon and the stars, says Genesis 1, are in the dome. Water above the dome, sun, moon, and stars in the dome. Fourth day of creation. Well, you know, we're farmers. We're ancient Israelite farmers. What do we need on the surface of the earth if we're going to be successful farmers? Israel, there's no irrigation. Uh, The only river that exists in Israel is the Jordan River. Most of us are living about 2,000 feet above sea level. The Jordan River is like uh, 1,000 feet below sea level. We don't have the technology to get that water where we are. So what do we have to have in order to be successful farmers? That's what we need. We need rain. Now, we've got a problem. If the water above the firmament is, in fact, being held up, by the firmament, how are we going to get rain? Well, the Bible says that there are what in the firmament? Starts with a W. W windows, the windows of heaven. And God opens those windows to let the rain come down. And then God closes the windows. This is not a scientific view, it's a true view. It's a biblical view. 
And uh, so that's what David would have seen. If you say, what's your world like? Flat earth, floating, firm on foundations, pillars, dome that holds the water up. But when it's time to rain, God opens the floodgates of heaven and lets the water down. When there's enough, he closes them. This is a very theistic view of the world. See, ancients, whether they were Israelites or Canaanites, they were theists. That is to say, they believed that there was God. They might have had different understandings of that God, but they all, even when it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, that's a practical atheism. There's no God that I have to deal with. But all ancients believed that there was a divine realm. And in the land of Canaan, they all believed that this divine realm interfaced with the human earthly realm. It was God or the gods who were in control of the planet. See, they believed that God was involved in everything. We have drunk so deeply at the well of naturalism that we don't often take God into consideration unless something dramatic happens. So we want to try this morning to capture uh, those, those pictures of the world that is how we read the Bible. Okay, that being said, that's kind of the big picture. I just want to look at two images from the ancient world. And the first image that we want to take a look at is the one that I've already mentioned, and that is the windows or the floodgates. Translations are going to do different things. The windows or the floodgates of heaven. Let's go to the uh, uh, flood story. Genesis 7, 11. Once you get this ancient view of the world in your head when you're reading the Bible, all sorts of texts just start to make sense. Uh, There's a thing, and I don't really get kind of what it is. I don't know much about the brain. Um, I I fell and got a concussion on my birthday, uh, December 30. Good, I can still remember. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been going to the chiropractor, and he's been doing some cranial adjustments. The first time I went, my wife and I sat down and watched Jeopardy. I answered more rate. Um, I went the other day, and he, he tested my cranials, and he said, you can, you, can, you can tell your wife there's nothing going on up there. And uh, so at any rate, that, that is all to say that I, I don't know much about neurology. There's a phenomenon. Um, A pregnant woman is walking through a mall, and she sees pregnant women everywhere. Oh, let's just say, I I think the Volkswagen quit making the Beetle or the Bug. Let's just say that you, they're still making them, and you see this Beetle or Bug, whichever one was the newest one, uh, on a car lot. And uh, it's it's a phenomenal color. You've never seen a color like that. So you decide that's the one I'm going to buy. Nobody has one like that. And you buy that. And what do you see? You see 10 beetles with that exact same color. Now, it's not that they weren't there before. It's just that when you buy that thing, it triggers something in the brain 
that enables you to start seeing what's always been around you, you just haven't been aware of it. One of the things that I want to accomplish this morning is to have that happen to you with your reading of the Bible. Once you see this kind of picture, then you begin to say, aha, I, there it is, there it is, there it is. It runs through the fabric of the Old Testament in particular, but also the New. So, Genesis 7:11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven forty days and forty nights. Now, if God's going to flood the earth, he's got to have a water supply, right? We know that there's only two places the water can come from based on Genesis 1, yes? It can either be the waters below, or it can be the waters above, or it can be both of them. So how does God flood the earth? God floods the earth so that the water that's under can come up. And then what's he do? He also opens what the NIV calls the floodgates of the heavens so that rain can come down. It's a very coherent and beautiful picture. It's not just one that we would paint with how a flood takes place. It is the water coming up from underneath and the water it happened because god opens the springs of the deep to let the water up and god opens the windows of heaven so that the rain can come down go over to uh, genesis 8 uh, 1 and 2 but god remembered noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling. So how does God start the flood? He opens up the springs so that the celestial water under the earth can come up. He opens the windows of heaven so that the water that's above the firmament can come down. And when it's time for the flood to be over, he closes the wind springs of the great deep, and he causes a wind to blow over the surface in order to uh, facilitate the drying up of the land. Uh, when, when I grew up, the church that I grew up in uh, taught what was called the canopy theory. And that is that our earth was once enveloped by a very thick, moist canopy. And that the flood was caused by that canopy breaking down. I don't know that anybody holds to that canopy theory uh, anymore. Um, but at any rate, one problem with that exegetically, not scientifically, I'm not here to evaluate uh, any views on science. We want to learn how to read the Bible. Um, but, but in Psalm 148, a Psalm of David, way, 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 way after the flood, that canopy, that firmament that's exegetically, uh, and I, I guess, I don't know, for scientific reasons, uh, nobody holds that view. But you can see the picture here, yes? We have the earth floating on water. We have the dome holding the water up. When God wants to flood, he opens up springs in the earth to bring it up. He opens up windows in heaven. This, was, this is not intended to be a scientific picture. By the way, did any of you see that beautiful rotation of the When's the last time you said that to anybody? Man, did you see that beautiful rotation of the earth this evening? No, what did you say? Did you see that beautiful what? 
even though you know, if you stop and think about it, that the sun doesn't what? It doesn't rise, and the sun doesn't what? So we as moderns use language, and everybody gets what we mean, and nobody, when's the last time you said, did you see that beautiful speaking the truth? They say, what, what are you doing lying to me, telling me that this, there's a sunrise? Don't you know that that's the rotation of the earth? No, we don't even stop and think about it. And the Bible has that same kind of language throughout with regard to creation. Sunrise, sunset. Only, we won't look at this, only the Bible doesn't speak of sunrise. It does speak of sunrise and sunset, but it also speaks of entry. The sun, Psalm 104, the sun knows. Our translations are going to say the sun knows the place of its setting. Why do they say that? Because that's the way we describe it. But the Hebrew says the sun knows its entrance. If we have the earth here and we have the sun and the moon and the stars in the firmament up here and the waters up above the firmament. By the way, that's a big problem is language of creation and science. Because we know from the flood story that the water above the firmament is where the flood waters come from, the rain. That's where rain comes from. But we also know from Genesis that the sun and the moon and the stars are in the firmament. That means if we're going to read Genesis 1 literally, our rainwater has to come from above the sun and the moon and the stars. Our rainwater has to travel space, penetrate our atmosphere, and then fall in the form of rain. I don't know anybody who believes that. In other words, nobody, nobody consistently reads Genesis 1 literally. So we have this picture emerging of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sun you see is moving through that firmament but what happens at night's place where it enters what's under the world and it continues the circuit until the next morning and then it re-enters and so we have a picture of the sun doing what with regard to the earth it's going around the earth. And if you and I lived before Copernicus and Galileo, we would all agree that the earth is at the center of the universe and the sun is going around the earth. And why would we believe that? For two reasons. Our theologians told us that's what the Bible teaches. And our scientists, influenced by Aristotelian uh, philosophy, said that's what science teaches us. And we know marijuana was recreationally available in the Middle Ages. Yeah, but we would have all thought that. And in fact, when somebody comes along and starts to say, I don't think so. No, no. The earth is not the center with the sun going around. It's the opposite. The earth is going around the sun. You know what we would have done? We would have joined the bandwagon to burn the heretic. What theologians were saying, and he didn't agree with what traditional scientists were saying. That's what we would have, that's where we would have been if we lived before Copernicus and Galileo. By the way, just a historical note, because sometimes I don't put all these people together. Copernicus and John Calvin overlapped. They were both alive in Europe at the same time. Um, meet Copernicus? I don't know. Very possibly. Maybe they talked. 
maybe it was Copernicus that was helping Calvin see that the that Saturn, though bigger than the Earth, is not so uh, according to the eye. And so the Bible, maybe there was influence on Calvin by Copernicus. I don't know. Uh, Calvin couldn't have met Galileo, but it's Leo is born. So while those two don't overlap, they're all in this same time frame where there is a R-E-V-O-L taking place. There's a revolution taking place, the Copernican Revolution, where the world, people's view of the world is being turned upside down, and that whole movement. So, um, let's go to Malachi 3.8. This is probably a text that you're familiar with. Uh, you've probably heard, when it, cam- when it comes fall and the, a church is short, uh, on meeting its budget, this text is often pulled out. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you ask in tithes and offerings. You are under a, a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there will be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not. How many of you have heard that text read before? Uh, How many of you have read it yourself? How many of you have stopped to think concretely about what the picture is here? Open the floodgates of heaven. Remember, these are ancient farmers, and what do they need to be successful? One word starts with R. They need rain. How are they going to get rain if the water is windows, floodgates? And God says, test me in this. Uh, Give your tithes, give your offerings, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven. Now, we use that kind of metaphorically, right, for God's going to really, like, really, really bless us. But you stop and think about concretely where the image is coming from. It only makes sense if you have an ancient view of the world, the water above, the windows, and God says, yeah, I'm going to open those windows, and I am going to pour out a blessing on you. Uh, let's see. Let's look at one more, Isaiah 24:18. Isaiah 24, 18. Terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. Floodgates open. Foundations of the earth. What is that? Now, I know that there are people who have done a a modern scientific explanation for what these floodgates are and what these foundations are and what the waters of the great deep are. But I think they're just completely looking in the wrong direction when they're trying to match the language of the Bible and a scientific view of the world. Never going to there's never going to be success there. There's in my estimation, there's never going to be a coming together of young earth Christian Canyon or their reading of Genesis one. They're, they're never going to get together. 
And the reason why they're never going to get together, in my estimation, is that they're starting at the wrong place. And if you start at the wrong place, you can never get to the right conclusion. Uh, but again, that's a little commercial for Sunday morning's Sunday school class. But here we have this beautiful picture of the floodgates of heaven being opened and the foundations of the earth shaken. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. So uh, more on those foundations of the earth uh, momentarily. So we just looked at some texts to, to support the idea that in the introduction, when I told you about the flat earth and the, uh, the windows of heaven and the water coming down, I'm not making this up. I'm just trying to show you that this the world in which we live. And it's not giving us a scientific description. Remember Calvin, if you want to learn astronomy, go somewhere else. It's giving us a theological description. And we want to embrace that theological description of the Bible so that when we're reading our Bible, uh, it makes sense and we can get the most out of it. Now, at this point, let me just, before we go on to the next, before we go there, uh, let me talk about two errors to avoid. Uh, in my estimation, two errors to avoid in handling this kind of imagery as moderns who have a scientific understanding of the world. One error to avoid is to insist that we have to take the language of the Bible literally. That's kind of the main point of what we're doing, that this is imagery. Look at Ecclesiastes 11.3. Ecclesiastes. 11.3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. I could multiply examples like this. What's the point of looking at this text? Folks, the ancients knew where rain came from. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Folks who speak the Eskimo language, they probably have like, I'm going to just be a little hyperbolic, they probably have 40 words for snow. Why do they have all these different words for snow? Because it makes a big difference. Uh, do you remember as, uh, how many of you grew up in and getting up in the morning and looking out your bedroom window and seeing snow fall on the ground and how happy you were because you got a day off from school? Then you went outside to play in the snow and there was no moisture in it. You couldn't make a snowball out of that stuff if your life depended on it. It wouldn't pack at all. Not all snow is created equally, is it? You have different moisture content, and that depends. Because on the other hand, you could go out because your gloves are sopping wet already. Snow has different amounts of moisture in it, and we always like that perfect amount where you could roll the snowman, build the fort, make the snowballs. And... Um, the, the, the point is, the, the ancients understood, as observers of the world, they understood where rain came from. People got up in the morning and, wow, look at that beautiful blue sky. There is not a cloud in the sky. It's raining today. They were keen observers of the world around them. They knew that rain came from clouds. What's my point? My point is that when they have this image and water falling through it, 
we shouldn't take that as a literal picture that they thought that that's the way it really was any more than I think you think that uh, the sun rises and sets literally because you said to me, did you see that beautiful sunrise this morning? So they have this, shouldn't take that literally. If this is imagery. Um, are you a branch? Yes or no? Or is that a trick question? Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Is that true? Yes, it is true. No, it's not true. Vine, not literally, no grapes growing on him. You're not a branch that's hanging from the vine. But it is true theologically that he's the vine, you're the branch, and you must stay connected to him if you want to bear fruit. See, figurative language, images, images speak the truth. They just don't speak the truth in literal ways. He is not, literally. The Bible's full of these descriptions. We're going to look more at that in the second lesson when we look at what's called anthropomorphic language. Let's look at a, a one more example, uh, Proverbs 16, 14. Uh, Proverbs 16, 15. When a king's face favor is like a rain cloud in spring. Ancients, ancient uh, people who speak um, languages in uh, native languages in Alaska have a bunch of words for snow. The Old Testament has a bunch of words for clouds because clouds make a difference. There are words for clouds when the cloud is a dust cloud. Off the, there's a word for clouds when there is rain in the cloud because clouds made a what? Made a big difference to them. And so they have a rich vocabulary of clouds. Now, I know you're going to think this is weird, but there's a um, there's a, a, a big like five volume dictionary of biblical words and ideas and that sort of thing. And, and when they asked me if I wanted to contribute to that years ago, I said, yeah, but only if you give me the brain, give me all the vocabulary on the words for clouds. Uh, I wrote articles on all of that kind of geographical stuff. It's stuff that people don't find interesting, but it is like way important for our reading of the Old Testament. The more we understand the everyday lives of ancient Israelites, the more we're going to understand the message that God communicated to them in their. Uh, so the first thing is to say with this language, avoid interpreting this language literally and saying to somebody, if you're a real Christian and you really love God, you're really going to believe that the earth is flat and there's a solid dome above it that holds up the clouds and water comes from up and water comes from down. And why do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. So avoid taking this. Uh, avoid interpreting this language as ancient science that was wrong. And an ancient science to which God accommodated himself. This is a fairly common view. Uh, there are authors out there that I've learned a lot from, but I don't go this direction with them. They'll say that 
ancients actually believed earth was really floating on water and that there were windows and that God would open them, that this is the ancient view of the world. It's not correct scientifically, but God wasn't really interested in taking the time to correct their faulty view, their faulty science. He just wanted to get at the theology. So he just accommodates himself to their erroneous scientific views and uses it as a vehicle to teach. I could bring you books that say just that. Avoid that interpretation. That's one of the reasons why we read the Ecclesiastes text and the Proverbs text. We read the Ecclesiastes text and the Proverbs text to say, come on, these guys knew where rain came from. They knew it didn't come from above a solid dome. They knew it came from the clouds. So don't push them and say they thought this was literally true. They think that the uh, sun is going around the earth rising and setting. We have to allow the ancients to have a fairly basic observational view that rain comes from clouds. And we also have to let them say, wasn't that a beautiful sunset? Isn't that a beautiful dome up there with windows in it? A theological picture as, one, as well as one that comes from natural. Uh, so, windows in heaven and some errors to avoid. Avoid insisting on all of this language uh, being literal and avoid insisting that the ancients had an erroneous ancient cosmog, uh, picture of the world uh, and God just accepted it and used it. Didn't bother cor- uh, correcting it until... Uh, what time do we... What is it? 10 to 10? We go to what? 10 15? Okay. Okay. So we, that means go to 10 14. All right. Uh, we can do this this next one a little more quickly because hopefully you're getting the idea. Now let's look at the foundations of the earth. Also referred to, let's look at a couple of texts here. Let's start with Zechariah 4, 9. Zechariah 4, 9. I just want to show you, first of all, that the word that is used for foundations of the earth is the same word that is used for the foundation of a building. Nothing different here. God laying the foundation of the earth is in terms of the vocabulary. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Zerubbabel, uh, after Cyrus, king of Persia, takes the... Judahites who were living in the Babylonian captivity after uh, the Babylonians had beat up the land of Judah and carted all this, go back and build your temple. Zerubbabel was one of the key leaders in the rebuilding of the temple. This is like roughly the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it says that Zerubbabel's hands laid the foundation of the temple. This is just what you do, right? My father uh, built a a second building. He had a cabinet shop, and then he opened up a store that sold all things wood, and they started by laying the foundation. And if my dad were here today, he would tell you that the problem in the foundation followed him until the last shingle was put on the roof. That problem in the foundation followed him building the walls, building the second-story floor, second-story walls, putting in the bad foundation, problems all the way along. So that's what we're talking about here, just laying a foundation. 
when we moved from California to Orlando, be in a hotel for um, about a week or so while they finished up the house. Well, this was the first time I had ever built a house. And I didn't know anything about, like, keeping tabs on the – this is a big building, you know, building big developments. Uh, it, how, how's my house coming? Didn't know anything about that. Yeah, I kid you not. We're – hey, we're going to be in to see the house uh, later this afternoon. Can somebody be there to let us in? We pull up to the lot, and there are the elevation stakes in the ground. I know what happened because we were coming. They said, hey, we got to get something done on this house before they get there. That's all there was. There wasn't even a foundation poured for the house. Yeah, six of us were about 12 weeks while they built the house. We have never seen so many movies at the theater. In all, We did anything to stay out of the condo. Uh, and we just go in when we were tired at night and fall asleep. But at any rate, I look at the Zechariah text just to say that the, the language of the foundation of the earth, the language of the foundation of the temple, it's all the same language. Now let's look at a text that I've alluded to, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it. There's our language. That's the language of laying the foundation of a building. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Now, your translation might not say waters. Your translation might say rivers. We got any? Um, the word river in the plural is often used for the sea, like the Mediterranean Sea. And it's probably because a sea has what in it? Starts with C. U R. R. Currents. Rivers flow, currents flow. And so ancients, not only Hebrews, but others use the plural of the word river to refer to laying the foundation of the earth. And what's it on? It's on the sea. And the earth is established. That it is, it's, it's made firm on the rivers or on the waters that are flowing underneath it. And again, I, I know people are going to do a yeoman's job to try to make this language match uh, some understanding of the thing. But in my humble estimation, that's twisting the scriptures to make them say something that they simply don't say. Looking at this through ancient eyes, we have a flat earth and it's, it's on the water. It's on, the, it's on this, this terrestrial water. But it has to have foundations, right? Or it's going to do this. And you're not going to survive and thrive if you're living all. Let's look at another text. Uh, and this will kind of complete this picture for us. Psalm 104. Verse 5. He, God, notice he set the earth on its foundation. Not literally, theologically. It can never be moved. My NIV is a little bit tepid here. I think the ESV is similar. Does anybody have an NASB out there? What's the NASB say for Psalm 104, verse 5? It's the best translation. 
taught her. It makes perfect sense, right? If the earth is on water, he has to put foundations in or the earth is going to do what? It's going to totter. This is a complete picture. It's an ancient picture. It's a theological picture. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, And part of what I'm interested in is just the beauty of the Bible's pictures. Um, I'm sorry, is it William? Bill? Bill. Bill. Not William. Yeah, my son was William. I lost that battle. Now I call him Willie. Uh, Bill, would you just hold up your bowl? I don't mean... Now, I'm a woodturner. Yeah, I'm not that kind of woodturner. That is beautiful. And even if you don't understand anything about how it came from and what the wood is and the techniques used to turn that hollow form bowl and what kind of finish is put on it and where there's some epoxy filler that is put in, you can just say, wow, that's beautiful, right? Shouldn't we be able to say that about God's Word? Shouldn't we be able to, to read these ancient pictures like, like ancient art and say, wow, that is a beautiful picture of reality. But for centuries, we as Christians haven't done that because we did a view of the world where the earth is going around the sun instead of vice versa. We just let all that go. And we are the poorer for it because we're missing the beauty of God's revelation as well as missing the understanding of it. So we have the earth set on foundations so that it won't totter. This makes perfect sense. If. um, Let's look at one more. Psalm 75, 3. Uh, Just beginning in verse 1, we praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. Um, Some tornadoes. Uh, any of you ever been in a hurricane? Yeah. Hurricanes are no fun. I mean, it's like a whole week of preparation and wondering and losing days at work, and then it doesn't come, and you've got to take another week to put everything back. Uh, or it does come, and then you have to clean up all the debris and then put everything back. Um, I think that the most traumatic uh act of God, as insurance companies call them, is the earthquake. With a hurricane, and even with a tornado, you get some warning. You get tornado watches, and then they upgrade the watch to a warning. Yeah, with an earthquake, zilch. It just happens. 
not only that, you think you can count on being firm and solid is the ground under your feet. When that ground starts to shake, it just messes with your mind. It's very traumatic to go through even a small earthquake, uh, let alone to go through a larger one. When the earth and all its people come the one who hold its pillars firm. Now, maybe you've read this psalm before. When you did, did you stop and think about the image? The fact that this language that God uses here presumes that the earth is flat and floating on water. And when it starts to shake, it might fall off the foundation. Uh, Yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? Well, building is moved off of its foundation by a foot. And you know what that does to the first floor and the second floor if it shifts off its foundation. Yeah, when, when that's threatening to happen, what does God do? He gets underneath there and he holds those pillars firm so that it's all going to be okay. That's the picture. Very clear. And so very helpful. Because metaphorically speaking, rocky, don't they? The foundation. Maybe the foundation comes out from under your feet, that proverbial rug. Uh, Mixing my metaphors, but that's okay. Um, maybe, Maybe things are shaky because of a relationship. Or maybe the foundation is shaking because of health issues. Or maybe the foundation is shaking because of financial issues, right? Wouldn't it be nice to know? That even in those rocky situations, there is somebody who's paying attention and can hold those pillars firm. His name, his name is God. He calls himself in the Bible, maker of heaven and earth. So you see, I'm to kind of show you how the Old Testament uses this imagery for God. And that it's not to be taken literally. Uh, and that it is it, that it's not to be taken as ancient science that was erroneous. It is to be understood as ancient imagery, but imagery that speaks profoundly to the human heart, so that our relationship with God grows and blossoms, and our faith in an earth. We know that He's the one who controls the dome and lets the rain down. We know that He's the one who holds the pillars of the earth firm when life is shaking all around us. These are the ancient images that God used to communicate to his people, and they got it. It's a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a stretch for us because we're modern people. We're not ancient eyes to begin to see and read the Bible with these ancient pictures in mind. Um, last year when I came, it was, I think, the weekend after the Super Bowl. I don't know what happened. Um, the, uh, the, the, when I went, sometimes, you know, you go to rent a car at an airport, and you say, like, there's one car there. Uh, we've been there as a family. Once we went on a family at the airport on the car lot, and they said, would you like it? <laughs> what do you think we said? What's our alternative? Sure, we'd, we love that one. It did happen to be a van. That helped with four kids. Let's see, where was I? Help me. Oh, yeah, 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 thank you. 
Um, so I, 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 I reserve some kind of regular car. And when I get to the line, they say, and uh, some of you will know what it is. I don't remember all the numbers. But there was a BMW, and it was a two-seater. And I didn't even know until I got here, but Sam and Tim told me, did you know that that car you're driving is a hardtop convertible? I said, no, I didn't know that. And, and Tim said, yeah, here's how you, for a weekend, I'm driving this uh, this really nice BMW, and I only paid the normal $14 a day. It had to have been because they had all these cars and they needed to, to do something with them. Now, since I'm on Medicare, I'm allowed to say I have no idea why I just told you that. Now we've... Now we've got to back up a little bit further. What brought that to mind? It's a good time to say, does anybody have any questions? Hey, a tough um, audience. If you have forgotten something, don't expect them to remember, okay? All right. Uh, okay, Tim. Questions? Tim doesn't have a question. Tim has a joke to tell. Respect to the ancients being flat earthers, how do you explain in Isaiah 40, where Isaiah is saying that God sits on the circle of the earth? Yeah. Um, let's let's go. Let's go back to Psalm. 104. Uh, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. This is a way of saying God is the great king. That pair, splendor and majesty, is only used of royal regalia. And great is a word that is associated with the king in the ancient world. If two kings were in relationship, one of them was in the psalm starts by celebrating God as king. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. Not literally, but this is again speaking of the brilliance, the radiance of his regalia. And notice he stretches out the heavens like a tent. Now, a tent is supple, right? Uh, A tent is not solid. Another restood that the dome was a figure of speech and not to be understood as ancient science is because sometimes they talk about the heavens as a solid dome. Sometimes they talk about the heavens as a supple tent cloth. Well, which one is it? Neither. They're both images. Is Jesus your door or your vine? The Bible uses a multiplicity of images. And in the same way, the, one of the reasons we know they didn't think the dome was solid is because they also used the cloth of a tent for the dome, which couldn't hold up. Ancient tents couldn't hold uh, water up. Now, notice it goes on to say then, and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their water. How many waters are there? No hints. Two. Where's one of them? Under the earth. Where's the other one? Above the earth. On what is the earth built? The waters below. But because of that, it has to have what? 
has to have foundations. Now let's go into the, not the, in the heavenly realm, what's God's house built on? It's built on water. Just like your, just like the earth is built on water, God's heavenly dwelling is built on water. And since his heavenly dwelling place might totter since it's on water, what does he have to lay for it? What's it say? On beams. Good, solid foundation. In other words, earth is a reflection of the heavenly reality. And that's what God is doing in creation. He is creating a visible reflection of the invisible realities of heaven. And so his heavenly home is on the celestial water, and it has to have beams put in. Real water, and it has to have beams put in. So this combines the whole picture, but notice, where is, where is God sitting? He's sitting on the circle of the earth. It's not saying that the earth is a circle. It's that circle of the earth that the sun goes round and round and round on. But when it says God is sitting on the circle, that means, and we want to get it always. What's it saying theologically if God is above the circle? One word, see. Control. He's in control of the, of the whole thing. Isn't it a beautiful picture to know? When life seems chaotic, isn't it wonderful to know that there's someone who sits on the circle of the earth? He's above it all. He's not down here caught up in all that can do about it. Yeah, God never feels that way. He, there's always something he can do about it because he sits on the circle of the earth. I think we want to try to, when we come across language like this, our goal is not, this is Sunday school tomorrow, our goal is not how do we match this language with our understanding of the earth being a globe. Our goal is how do we understand this as an ancient ancient Israelites because a round spherical globe wouldn't have made any sense to them. Someone else? Tim, I thought you were going to tell the joke about the memory. Uh, Mark, the ancients knew where rain came from and thunder and lightning because they could see it. How did they describe it? How, how did they describe it? Yeah, they, there's no way they could see an earthquake. And no, but they could feel it. Yes. So it was, these are the, it was, it was known to them sensorily. And uh, in... We do have evidence in the Bible that there were some earthquakes in biblical times. So when the Bible speaks about earthquakes kind of eschatologically at the end of all times, whether we're to take that literally, all I'm interested to say is that that would be a figure. If it is a figure of speech, it's a figure that comes out of experienced reality. They had earthquakes. Okay, I see 10.15. Uh, We're going to take a break uh, for a half hour and come back.